Hello and welcome to our fifth episode of Yuskentium's podcast series. My name is Özge and I will be relaying a number of podcast sessions published by Yuskentium International Law Association. In our fifth episode, I'm really happy to listen today a good friend Hannes Jöpsel. Hannes is a PhD candidate in the University of Oxford in the field of public international law and worked as a legal advisor in the Austrian Parliament. Welcome Hannes, how are you? Welcome. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm very well. How about you? Thank you very much. Um, people who may be listening to us uh, would be curious about your career journey. What are you doing right now? So as you've already laid out at the beginning, I'm currently doing my PhD uh, in England at the University of Oxford in the field of international law, mm-hmm. um, where I mainly deal with courts and penal proceedings that are conducted by non-state armed groups, so insurgent and rebel movements around the world. Mm-hmm. And the idea that initially sparked my interest in the topic was basically um, the current conflict in Syria and the various armed groups that are active there, for example, ISIS, um, Jabhat al-Nusra or the Kurdish factions in northern Syria that in the default of the Syrian state have started to set up their own judicial systems, courts that they use to try both their own fighters, captured enemy soldiers but also to use it as a kind of dispute resolution forum for the local population. Mm-hmm. Um, what reason, reason or defining moment led you to these fields of research and what are the stakes and the challenges that you face in your research in these areas? Well, I think what the what led me to this research was really a, a particular court case in Sweden um, that happened about three years ago now. It was called the Sakhan case and it was about... a. Syrian national who had been granted refugee status in Sweden hmm. and he was he used to be a member of one of the armed groups um, engaged in, in an armed conflict against the, the Syrian government mm-hmm. and uh, there was some evidence brought forward by the Swedish prosecution authorities that he was involved in the execution of uh, a couple of captured uh, Assad soldiers and so he was charged with war crimes and as a defense he said well i didn't kill those people I didn't murder these people what i did was simply uh, i carried out a death sentence because these soldiers had been found looting uh, and, and killing in a neighboring village and we caught them they've been sentenced to death and was just uh, carrying out the sentence so my question was and the question that the court was faced with was whether or not an armed group a non-state entity can actually set up court and pass a sentence and then whether or not this particular soldier could rely on this sentence in, in in carrying out the execution and this is mainly a field that is regulated by international humanitarian law mm-hmm. but it was really the first i think the first ever court case where a domestic court uh, measured whether or not an armed group could actually do that and what kind of fair trial guarantees they would have to comply with in doing so uh, under international law And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so this is what would let me to my research. Hmm. Uh, I understand. Um, could you um, please explain a little bit how was your experience in Austrian Parliament as a legal advisor? So uh, maybe uh, at the beginning, I have to mention that I was already doing my. So I did my undergraduate uh, legal studies in Austria and Graz, mm-hmm. uh, and already throughout my kind of undergraduate life I was always active in politics and very interested in politics and this was also the reason why I decided to to study law because I've always thought that um, studying law gives you a very good background in understanding how a state works how politics mm-hmm. works how the various oh, institutions yeah. institutions uh, such as the parliament but also uh, 
courts, different ministries, authorities actually function. And after having completed my, my law degree, I also did a, a master's degree, but then I got this offer to, to work in, uh, in the Austrian parliament as a legal advisor, but I was um, seconded to one of the political parties that are present in the parliament. So I was basically working for one, for a range of MPs within the same political party, advising them on matters of constitutional law, human rights law, and, and, and judicial mm-hmm. affairs. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it was a very fascinating experience, um, also from the perspective of an international lawyer or from the perspective of a human rights lawyer, because I think sometimes we tend to underestimate the banalities of lawmaking and where the law is actually made. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it obviously depends on the various political systems, but it really... So I think many people tend to overestimate uh, the role parliament plays in the actual drafting of the laws. Um, so whereas, in theory, parliament is, of course, the legislative body, this body that passes the laws, but the actual drafting very often is done within the ministries, within you know mm-hmm. different government departments. And, and I think this really shaped my understanding of the entire le- legislative process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think this has had an impact on how I view lawmaking in, in general. And whereas it was a great experience to see um, how this works in practice and how to and actually get some kind of um, insight on the political front line after two years, I decided that it was a very interesting experience, but I had enough. And uh, as a lawyer, the, the working working as a lawyer in this kind of political environment can be very challenging because very often it's a very fast paced environment. Mm-hmm. So that means very often you only have hours to, you know, brief somebody on a legal question. And this could mm. be a legal question that, you know, you could spend months writing a memo or even years writing a PhD about. So um, in an academic environment, we are used to, you know, having a lot of time really dealing with one particular question for, for a long time in very, very, uh, and go into into a lot of details. Um, whereas in the political political environment, you just don't have the time. So it could be the case that you know an MP or somebody asking said, "Oh, I'm going to go on television tonight. They're going to ask me about you know uh, this particular law or or on uh, our new refugee policy or whatever." Um, or, or the government has put forward a new proposal, and do you think this is legal or not? So and you have basically have one or two hours to come up with some. But it's in the end more or less an educated guess, but it's certainly not enough time to come up with a proper legal analysis. So it's a trade-off. And somebody, I mean, some people do like this kind of fast-paced environment. I do. Uh, but for others, it was very challenging, especially if you come from this kind of academic environment or people. I had colleagues who used to work at, you know, a university department. So for them, it was very challenging that mm-hmm. they just couldn't sit down and just study this question for a couple of weeks and then come up, come up with a judicious answer. Mm-hmm. So that's the main difference, I guess. Mm, well, many thanks. Um, so I would like to, as you know, we are in a rough, very rough time. So I would like to know more about your thoughts about, about uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. So how can the virus, coronavirus can change the world, especially from the international perspe- international mm-hmm. law perspective? Um, what do you expect? Well... I think it's a good question. I mean, uh, a lot has been already said by international law scholars on particular questions of treaties, of of, um, circumstances precluding wrongfulness about whether or not coronavirus could be used to terminate treaties. Um, 
what that constitutes, uh, fundamental change of circumstances, and all these kind of technical questions. But I think from a broader, from more broader perspective, um, not only from the perspective of international law, but the legal profession in general, I think what we can see right now is that it will really help transform the legal profession to become more, you know, um, to focus more on on uh, working remotely, but also, for example, having hearings remotely. So what's currently happening in Austria, and I believe in other jurisdictions as well, is that, you know, uh, proceedings are increasingly being moved uh, online. And hearings are happening via Skype, via other platforms. So I really think that this is going to receive a push um, because I think judicial authorities until now were still very reluctant to move away from a traditional, you know, court hearing in mm-hmm. a traditional court setting. So this is definitely going to transform the profession um, to some extent. And then also, I think from my perspective, you know, that the deal mainly in my research, deal mainly with international humanitarian law, laws of armed conflict, humanitarian law, uh, national security. And from this perspective, I think what we've really seen through through COVID-19 mm-hmm. is how vulnerable even very well-developed states actually are yeah. in terms of these kind of um, uh, diseases and whether or not um, I think this could actually um, also spark kind of a re-emergence of um, chem- uh, not chemical but biological warfare. <laughs> um, so we've seen that, you know, states that are very, very concerned about the security, uh, for example, the United States, are very heavily affected by this virus. And I think this has also opened the eyes for, for many people in the security sector that, for example, healthcare <laughs> uh, or the access to healthcare uh, should also be seen as an issue of, of national security um, because it can affect the country that otherwise has been perceived as impregnable for other security threats. And, and obviously, it's also an issue uh, from a human rights perspective. We've seen states oh, that have been criticized for, for not doing enough um, with regard to the protection of the citizens. And this could actually, be, I can already envisage a lot of claims, um, especially in the European jurisdiction also, maybe one or two of them will at some point go to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, states might have not fulfilled the due diligence obligations mm-hmm. with the with regard to the right to life and so on and so forth. Uh, so I, I can definitely envisage a lot of, of case law coming out of this in the future, but this will take some time until we're there. Today, I read an article in European Journal of International Law mm-hmm. that... Uh, Another claim that uh, we can uh, we can take the chi- take China uh, to international court of justice. It's interesting, right? Uh, um, I haven't I haven't read the article, so I don't know what the jurisdictional basis would be mm-hmm. um, to take China to the to the ICJ. So I would have to look that up. But mm-hmm. I I definitely think that we'll see a lot of litigation. Um, maybe not necessarily interstate litigation, but I think that we'll see a lot of cases coming out from the domestic courts to to um, yeah, international, international courts as well, as, yeah. especially probably the human rights courts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for your enlightening insight on the issues uh, we have in, discussed in our fifth episode, Hannes, uh, and I'm wishing you the best in, long, in this long career journey. Uh, and I'm sure our next episode will be extraordinary, instructive and entertaining as this one. 
Um, finally, I would like to thank to all our listeners for joining our podcast session. Please do not forget to follow us on social media and please stay at home and be safe.